1: All right, it's Bob for Talking Comics here at day four of the New York Comic-Con, and we're privileged to be here with Chris Claremont, who had a nearly two-decade run as writer of the X-Men, and also co-creator, co-plotter, designer of characters Rogue, Kitty, Jubilee, Emma, we can't say how many, they're they're all your creations. So thank you, Chris Claremont, for joining us today. My pleasure.
0: Thank you
1: for coming. Our pleasure to have you. Uh, Jumping right in, because we do have limited time here, how did the X-Men come to you after you know the relaunch uh, with Len Wein back in the 70s?
0: Well, Len was editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics at the time. I was his associate editor, which mean, meant basically I was number two. My, my desk was right outside his office. So while he and Dave were plotting issue one, I was kibitzing, listening, sneaking in, looking at the sketches going, this is so cool, this is so cool, Len snarling, will you get the hell out of here? Uh, On the other hand, I tossed in an idea when they were trying to figure out how to get rid of Krakoa. I came up with, well, why not use, sever the lines of force, anchoring the the body of land to the planet, and let... Inertia and uh, and the lack of gravity do the rest. Wow. So the planet kept moving, and the Krakoa stayed where it was. So when Len decided to leave, his po- to, to he'd had enough of being boss, and uh, got a an assignment of like the four top monthly titles he ha- he didn't have time to do the fifth title which was a quarterly at the time uh x-men and uh, asked if i'd be interested in writing it and i said hell yes chance to work with these characters to work with dave Cockrum. you don't say no
1: so now, did you hide your enthusiasm, all the the sneaky you were doing before, and just or just no, go I'm right for it?
0: Damn near knocked down the door. There was no way I was going to let anyone else near this book if I could get away with it.
1: Now, through the history of that book, you were certainly grandly celebrated, and rightly so for your depth of characterization, particularly with the female characters through the book. Mm-hmm. Was that something that was part of that plan that you had in your head that these were great characters that you had somewhere you could go with all of them?
0: Well, it, it, it well, that. Approach wasn't restricted to by gender I felt that way about all the characters I mean when you're dealing with such fascinating visual constructs as Aurora, Nightcrawler even uh, John Proudstar uh, Colossus how can you not just be embraced by them and not want to present them in as full and varied A set of, you know, a way as possible. And by the same token, it wasn't just them, it was Scott and eventually Gene. So, you know, playing with the X Men was playing with the ultimate Toy Story, I guess you could say.
1: As always, it's about writing great characters, regardless of the gender or anything else. It's putting together a real living, breathing person.
0: Mm hmm. Yes.
1: Now I remember at the time the death of of Thunderbird of John Proudstar was shocking to everyone. Was that your well, decision?
0: No, that was Lens. I mean, his, but the the rationale was you 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 do two things to achieve a meaningful death in comics uh, or in storytelling rather. You either build up the event, the character, the situation for issues and issues months and months stories for stories and then have it happen out of left field at which point the audience goes holy cow or it's right off the bat when you're just getting to know everybody and it's the last thing anyone expects and lens feeling was with a quarterly title if he if he took time to build up the characters and make john a relevant meaningful, memorable character in his own right it would be years down the road and there's no guarantee the book would be around that long. So his feeling was, his instinct was to opt for the immediate shock that you figure the character is going to be around for a while and then suddenly you step off the cliff and it's like, holy cow, he's dead. Um, and that's how it went. He... That was part of the, the... the That was the thrust of Issue 2, which then became 94 and 95, and I just followed his lead. And it, it turned out to be the right decision for a whole host of reasons, because part of the, the backlash from the readers is, well, they killed off John with Issue 2. They're not going to kill off anybody ever again, especially not... Half of the second oldest romantic relationship in Marvel Comics. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's go to let, let's go to that. What would, how would you describe? I mean, the the negotiations or whatever from upfront about you know gene having to uh, a spoiler yeah, alert the negotiations, for you. Yeah. uh... We we
0: wrote the the original story on the presumption that she would not die. Jim Shooter, editor in chief, read it, said, "Dudes." He did not say, "Dudes." Um, you cannot exterminate six billion people and get away with a slap on the wrist. That's genocide. Uh, you know, Eichmann didn't get away with it. Gene doesn't get away with it. Something's got to happen. Either she goes to prison for the rest of eternity, or she dies. And neither John and I were thrilled with this. And I wrestled with it for a weekend. And my feeling was I didn't want the book to devolve into we have to save Gene, we can't save Gene, we have to save Gene, we can't save Gene, we do save Gene, someone has, we have to like lose her again and have her put back. I wanted the story to end. So, uh, you know, I killed her.
1: Now, I've read that the initial plan was a longer term, you should be depowered.
0: Yes. But, it, but as Jim pointed out, she would be depowered and a little bit lobotomized, so she would be a more innocent character. And Jim's feeling was, A, it's comics, that never works. Something will happen. She'll be back to who she was in no time. And again, you cannot commit an act of Primal violence, even if it was an accident of that ex- of that ex- extremity, and not pay the price morally, not pay the price. And as I said, it led to a rewriting of the last six or seven pages, the the fight on, you know, the epic on the moon. Uh, but the writing of those scenes was jean coming to terms with the reality of what she did and as she said to scott it would require me to to be absolutely totally positively in control of every aspect of my conscious and subconscious and sub 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 subconscious self for the rest of eternity and if i ever slip just a little bit who knows what could happen and as far as she was concerned as a moral person and for better or worse a superhero she refused to be responsible for the death or injury of any other living sentient being better to end it to, to close the door and say i made a mistake i have to balance the scale And she did it. She, she, took, she ended her life as an act of heroism and courage, and as the Watcher said, she proved by her ability to, to turn down this ultimate gift that perhaps it's better to be human and moral and mortal than to become a god.
1: It's the operatic act of self-sacrifice. The panel you described, I actually had pulled out to to mention. I'm glad I didn't just have to go with it. You did it yourself. While we're here, can we speak a little bit about Murata the She-Wolf the Titan has just reissued? What can you tell us about that?
0: Well, it's it's a sword and sorcery epic that John Bolton and I did back in the day, uh, originally for epic. Uh, It's historical fantasy. She is the granddaughter of Julius Caesar. It is the start of Anno Domini. So Augustus is a young emperor of Rome, first first citizen about to become an emperor. And as he's coalescing his power, word comes out of the East that there's this warrior woman who's the granddaughter of Julius and this is the last thing Rome needs you know a legitimate heir Uh, because that would certainly muck up Augustus's plans and his wife Julia's plans, uh, Olivia's plans so hence the, the opening scene is a Roman tribune trying to curry favor by capturing her, and things get crazy from there on. And the three stories had a great run, and our hope is with the publication of this graphic novel, if it's successful, if there's a, a proper, you know, if it sells well, it might inspire Titan and John and me to do uh, the, next st- the next chapter in her life which would be her return to Rome. And lots of shenanigans therein.
1: Well, with Game of Thrones and this sort of political drama doing so well, I can't imagine it wouldn't be a grand success that they would do it.
0: I wouldn't either, but, you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see. And, of course, then it's a matter of the creators finding the time and the ability and the brilliance to come up with the right story and the time to produce it. So, fingers crossed, hope for the best and as always expect the worst. <laughs>
1: exactly. uh, we tend to ask everybody this, so we're always interested in how people got started into comics and who their influences are, favorite collaborators, all that sort of stuff. Can we go down that road a bit and how did you begin?
0: Uh, basically working for Marvel was a means of earning money between acting jobs. Wow. And then Marvel began paying a lot better and a lot more frequently.
1: Uh, so you, you were a comics reader early on? and just, uh, did you? I read it.
0: I read when I was young, but this was English work, Eagle magazine. Um, I got back into Marvel when I was leaving high school with uh, Stan and Jack's work on FF, the the arrival of Galactus and FF48, 49, 50. Then... Uh, Stan and Jack on Thor, Roy and John Buscema on The Avengers. It was all cool. Then I went off to college. My father threw away all my comics, including an issue of, of action where Superman tells John Kennedy his secret identity. Oh. Came out the first week in November 1963. Could have paid for my kid's college education <laughs> with that one, but he threw it out.
1: Uh, We all have those stories, sadly.
0: And, um, as I said, I came back, I was in New York, working, and, uh, started doing freelance for Marvel, and before I knew it, I was writing, and writing a lot, and then I got the X-Men, and never looked back. Uh,
1: Did you take influence from Stan from back then, other writers out of the industry? Stan was the one who
0: hired me, so, uh when I was still in college but um, no uh, to be honest a lot of most of my influences were theatrical and literary not not comics I wasn't that familiar with American comics on a regular basis truthfully up until Stan and Jack I didn't find it that interesting so it kind of grew with me.
1: Recently, we, uh, for our book club, uh, went through Days of Future Past, yeah. and people were really struck by the density of the storytelling, the amount of wonderful passages and paragraphs. Uh, that, so it's that literary influence, I guess, that put that onto the page for you. That it wasn't just fill a word balloon with your great krypton and moving on to that, that you were trying for something grander.
0: Not grander, more real. It's like... These are people. These weren't. They're not. They're not characters in a teleplay or a comic play. The vision. My vision of them was that these are real people in real situations. So, you want to know how they feel, what they're, what they're doing, why they're doing it. Uh, You want to create a sense of the physical and emotional reality around them. Uh, You see things on a picture, but that doesn't tell you how things smell, how things feel. Uh, what might be happening out of view. Uh, It's trying to complete the vision so that you not only have what's directly in front, but you have a peripheral sense of what's off to each side, what's behind, above, below, and you move on through there. It's the... It's using the combination of the visual storytelling that these days is viewed as as uh, storyboards with the complexity and variety that you can bring in from uh, prose and creating a, a lasting more comprehensive hopefully more real impact on the reader
1: you definitely created a world that we wanted to revisit month after month. They yeah. seemed as if they were part of our own family, and That's it always really had that true. feeling. That's otherwise, why I write the book? Yeah, even the quiet things, playing baseball, which became such a wonderful part of the book, you know, picnics, and all just regular family things. Well,
0: again, real life. We're not talking about people who wear skin tights twenty-four-seven who save the world, fight villains twenty-four-seven they are people, they have lives, they have families, they have friends, they relate to, to events and circumstances that have nothing whatsoever to do with superheroes and saving the world and whatever. And yet you can find a way to take those events and weave them back into the overall thrust of the story, for example a kid being a dick to kitty at dance class becomes the a launching element in God Loves Man Kills relating to prejudice between humans and mutants and Stevie Hunter calling her on it and Kitty calling Stevie Stevie on it by saying how would you feel if he called me a nigger? And Readers being reacting viscerally to our use of the word. How could you say that in a comic? Well, because we're making a point. And it doesn't, it doesn't work if you don't make the point. Just because it goes back even further. I mean, Stan and Jack did a wonderful scene where Galactus is putting the ultimate nullifier or whatever he's using, Gizmo, on top of the Baxter building... And there's a shot of a cop and a news cameraman witnessing the scene. The cameraman's filming it and wondering if this is the last thing he's ever going to film. And the cop, you know, saying, well, the FF are going to save. You know, hopefully the FF will save us. Or, you know, that's their part. You know, we hope it's taking something we can relate to in real life, per se, and weaving it into the comic, and thereby hopefully making a point of contact between the reader's experience and the comic character's experience. And it was something we were able to do, it seems, quite often and quite well. Would there be
1: one story arc or one issue that best represents you know, your thoughts and feelings about comics and the world in general and how they relate to each other? Uncanny ninety four to two seventy nine. That's the best answer about anything I've ever heard. It's all one story. Yeah, I don't think we even go past that. I'll just ask this though: Was there a character, either at Marvel or DC or anywhere else, that you never had the chance to write that you would have loved to?
0: No, actually, I think I wrote all the ones I ever really wanted to.
1: One of one of our uh, correspondents is a huge fan of Valerie Richards, who you. Introduced, how? What was your feeling about that? It's sort of the riff off of what John Byrne had done, with, where Sue had lost a child, and you you bring back a child to Susan Storm.
0: Well, yeah, except that her dad's Victor Von Doom. <laughs> Figure that one out. Yeah, it was fun. And why should Franklin be the only kid? And part of the rule of writing comics is. You take the status quo and you immediately throw in a monkey wrench. And in this instance, Valeria's whole point there is her presence reminds Sue of the child she lost. So the first six issues were instant, were total heartbreak, and Sue really angry. And it's even worse that she's Doom's kid. And it's like, you're you're telling me I have a child, I will have a child, and it'll be a child by Victor Von Doom? You. (laughs) And Reed's trying to be rational about this because he's Reed. Sue doesn't want to be rational. She's ready to kill somebody. And, of course, right in the middle of the conversation, Valeria walks through the door. And her mom is just saying, she's not my child. She is an abortion. Well, what... Fifteen-year-old wants to hear that from mom. So, you know, it's it's like immediately we, th- we, pu- we push the, bu- the car off the edge of the cliff, and Sue feels bad but conflicted. Valeria feels heartbroken. She doesn't understand. And then, of course, you come back 20 issues later, and suddenly reads the one trapped in the Doom armor, except he can slip in and slip out, and that's when Sue gets pregnant. And it's like, oh, holy cow. So her dad isn't Doom, it's really Reed. And, of course, the reader's going, I'm confused. And Valeria's going, whoopee. And then I got canned off the book, and it all went to hell. But, um, yeah, to me, that again, that's the fun, is you take you take something that in a way fits all the readers expectations and then you throw in a monkey wrench that totally screws it up and you then spend a year figuring out how to fix it seeing if you can play one or two steps ahead of the readers and everybody comes out thinking this is a really great story and uh, what's coming next
1: Stan always said never give the readers what they think they want Sort of philosophy.
0: Well, and I was taught by Stan, uh, which is something I will never regret and never be able to repay properly uh, or thank him properly. But that's, you know, I'm here because he helped, you know. He said, sure, come on down, you're hired. (laughs) Because I'd work for free.
1: (laughs) In this industry, I think a lot of us would, would have that.
0: No, I was, this is, the, the pre-intern days, he hired me as a gopher. And, you know, I worked for Marvel when the bullpen was John Romita, Herb Trimpey, Marie Severin, and Frank Giacoya. I mean, you can't get a better quartet than that. It's a master class. Right? It, well, and Roy Thomas was the assistant editor. Ha, ha, ha. And Stan was boss. And he, you know, it's, that's, you can't learn from better. And I like to think they, I did.
1: We'll ab, ab, absolutely so. I think we're interfering with uh, commerce a little <laughs> bit. So <laughs> let's, let's just wrap this up. Where can people get in touch with you? You have a website have or a, a website, uh,
0: chrisclaremont.com uh, or on Facebook. There's, I have a, a page Um, and that's it.
1: It's been our pleasure today to talk to Chris Claremont, the legendary author of The X-Men. Thank you so much for your time. You're
0: welcome. Thanks a lot.